name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to Talking Bat and I am so excited today. I woke up at half past four this morning. I tell a lie, I didn't actually wake up at half past four this morning. I went to bed at half past four this morning because at half past four this morning, I just finished an all night dusk to dawn Brandt's survey, trying to record some bats at a roost close to where I am in the Northwest of England today. That's not important. What is really, really, really important is when I went to bed this morning at half past four, I thought, oh no, I'm going to be interviewing Merlin Tuttle later. Am I going to remember to wake up, etc., etc. Hi, Merlin. How are you doing? Hi, Neil. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, very, very exciting for me to be talking to yourself. And not only do we have Merlin today, but we also have Teresa Nicta who is part of Merlin's team at Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. How are you doing, Teresa? I'm great. Thanks, Neil. Great. Did I pronounce your name correctly? I always get... I'm good for that, yeah. And are you guys okay with the Scottish accent? We love it. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're going to do today is walk through some of the things that Merlin has been involved with in something like 60 plus years of bat-related work, Merlin. Is that correct? 60 years? That's, that's correct. I hate to admit I'm that old. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm also right in saying that Merlin is a renowned bat expert, educator and wildlife photographer. We're going to talk a lot about most of these things, hopefully, in the course of today's Talking Bat. And he's also the founder and executive director of Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation, abbreviated to MTBC. And we're going to be talking quite a bit about MTBC later on as well. And Teresa is also here and Teresa is a co-founder of MTBC and she currently is the operations manager and runs the social media and much more. Now tell me, Teresa, you're not just here to make sure that I behave myself, are you? I'm here for, for both of you. She's just <laughs> here for make both sure I us. behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, Teresa, obviously I can't uh, I can't uh, control how well you keep control of Merlin. But if I do anything wrong, or if I say anything wrong, Teresa, please just take the Mickey, tell me I'm an idiot or whatever. Okay. <laughs> and we'll get through it. You got it. <laughs> right. So thank you. Thank you for that. So Merlin, I want to uh, ask you, well, look. When I knew that we were going to do this interview and I thought back to how long I've been doing bats, which is just less than 30 years. And when I got into bats, 
you are already very well known, uh, I would suggest, internationally at that stage. And I was kind of thinking, where the blazes do I begin with this gentleman? Because there is just so much. We could probably do 20 interviews and not cover it all. But I think what I'd like to do to begin with is you were born in Hawaii, uh, you ended up living in the States, and somehow in your teenage years, you started investigating caves for bats, I assume. And tell me a little bit about this. How did you get into bats at the very start of your bat career? Well, from practically the time I was born, I was fascinated by nature and the out of doors. Start out rearing monarch caterpillars on milkweed in the windowsill. Uh, terrorized my mother dragging snakes into the house that I was curious about when I was five. And by the time I was in high school, I discovered that there was a bat cave not far from my home and uh, <clears throat> got my father to take me to see the bats. And uh, we found that they were, well, at first I caught one and identified it in a field guide and then uh, discovered that this species was said to be non-migratory to live in a single cave year round. But the bats near my home were showing up only in the spring and fall, which even to a teenager seemed logically to imply that they were migrating somewhere. So I got my mother to drive me to the Smithsonian where I met with uh, experts and uh, explained that uh, I, I actually brought field notes and a voucher specimen with me and explained what I was seeing that it didn't jive with what was being said in the books of the day. And uh, so they were impressed and gave me several thousand bat bands, said, why don't you band some and see if you can figure out where they go. I went home, banded a couple hundred and just an extreme stroke of luck, accidentally found them a hundred miles north, hibernating in a cave within about three months later. When I made that discovery, that uh, not only showed that they were migratory, but that they were migrating north in the fall instead of south, which really was a surprise. Now we know that that species just comes into a given cave like spokes on a wheel from any direction, just whatever it takes to get to the ideal uh, temperature regime for hibernation. But uh, that just got me really excited. And uh, Wayne Davis, who was at the time writing the Bats of America book, he and Roger Barber, uh, I contacted him and he uh, took an interest in me and invited me to come help him band bats. And in the end, I ended up banding 42,000, almost 42,000 gray bats and tracking their movements for 20 years. And uh, that became my doctoral thesis, started in high school. Wow, 42,000 bats. Uh, that, that just shows how many bats you've got to band. And by band, what Merlin is talking about there, everyone, this is what we would say in Europe, we would call it ringing. Okay, so ringing, that's, that's right. what we mean by banding. But Merlin, obviously, as someone in their late teens going into these dangerous places, yeah, and 
going deep underground, you must have had an awful lot of training and an awful lot of health and safety guidance and an awful lot of uh, support before you went into any of these caves, yeah? <laughs> I had a lot of help from cavers who, unfortunately, at the, at the time were a major part of the problem of bat decline, that they're disturbing these bats in their nursery and hibernation roost and, and the species was in such rapid decline that Wayne Davis and Roger Barber had just predicted that it would soon become extinct. But uh, the cavers who at the time were pretty much anathema to bat biologists because of what their disturbance was, how their disturbance was harming bats, uh, they became enthusiastic allies. And over time, they not only took protecting bats very seriously, but there are literally hundreds of caves and mines today gated and protected for bats uh, by cavers and yeah. who, who have become leading conservationists who uh, use my photos and information and go out and give talks and help people learn about bats. Yeah, yeah. I was reading uh, quite recently, uh, I've been reading this book, okay, uh, The Secret Lives of Bats. Now, when I bought this book, I don't, I don't know what I was expecting the book to be, okay? Um, but right from chapter one, when you start talking about the backdrop to how you got involved with bats and your early days in the caves and the sort of crazy stuff you were doing in caves without, without the kind of gear people would use today, um, I kind of I also felt, I don't know, it, it was also as much the secret life of Merlin Tuttle. No, it was, it was like, you know, the stuff that you were getting up to in order to uh, get to where you were going. But, but back then, did you actually, there was no way that you could have ever conceived back in the 1960s or even the 70s that what you've ended up doing and where bat conservation has gone and where the world is now, albeit it's not a perfect place when it comes to bat conservation, but generally speaking, things over the last, you know, 40, 50, 60 years have changed quite dramatically. Would you agree or would you not agree? I had no idea when I started out that I might someday become a conservationist uh, the problem as I saw it originally was when I started investigating gray bats, we could see that the limestone ceilings where they roosted were stained and we could tell how big a colony had been there in the past by the extent of the stain on the limestone. <clears throat> and uh, it was very clear that caves that had housed tens, even hundreds of thousands of bats in the past either had none left or very few left. <clears throat> and I could find sticks and stones on the roost, sometimes shotguns and rifle shells where people had deliberately killed the bats. They had been told that they were rabid. The uh, Tennessee Health Department had uh, claimed that gray bats were a serious source of rabies. It's true that gray bats can contract rabies, but it's also true that in the entire history of 
American reporting, we don't know of a single case in which a gray bat has given rabies to either a human or, or an animal. So uh, people were needlessly frightened. And uh, I saw what a huge difference I could make by just sharing a little bit of information. That's something that every bat researcher should take time to do is share their knowledge in an entertaining way with the local people. We can yeah. have huge impact. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your own pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. farmer who told me when I asked permission to go into his cave to study my gray bats he said well kill all you can while you're there well I didn't bother to tell him that this was a very valuable endangered species uh, I simply thanked him for giving me permission to go in his cave and while I was there I picked up a bunch of potato beetle wings that these he was growing potatoes out in front and uh when I came out, I played innocent and went up to him and said, you know, I'm interested in what these bats eat. Can you tell me what these are? And he looks and, oh, they're those blankety blank SOB potato bugs. And then the lights start to dawn in his, you know, and you can see him, them bats eat potato bugs. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I mean, I picked these up under the roost. Obviously they were eating them. Uh, how many do they eat? I said, well, they don't just eat potato bugs. These bats eat mosquitoes. And I see you got some corn. They eat corn earworm moths. Uh, well, how many, how many can they eat in a night? And this is a colony of like 50,000 or more gray bats. And so I, I said, well, you know, they eat maybe 100 pounds. 100 pounds, that's a lot of bugs. And <laughs> the next time I came back, I had not told him anything about that he should protect his bats. I just showed him that they were valuable. When I came back, he had somehow decided that his bats are worth at least $5 a piece. That made him a wealthy man. And by George, anybody got near his bats to harm him and they were gonna go off his property at the end of his shotgun. Wow. wow. And it was experiences like that that actually led me to believe that I could found an organization for bats and survive doing it, that I could actually change people's minds. And, and this is what you did. In 1982, I think it was, you founded Bat Conservation International. Now, it's important to say that Marilyn uh, retired from Bat Conservation International in 2009. Uh, if my notes down here serve me correct. But Merlin, just give us a little bit of a background to setting up Bat Conservation International and what, what gave you that idea? Um, because it, it wasn't even Bat Conservation United States, it was Bat Conservation International, I think, right from the get-go. Uh, right. Tell us a little bit about what you were thinking there and what you thought you could maybe achieve. Well, the more I 
study baths. In fact, I was very lucky after graduate school to get a job where I could devote full time to studying baths anywhere in the world I wanted to go. I may have lived in a very frigidly cold Milwaukee, but uh, I spent my winters in Africa and Australia, Latin America, Asia, and the Pacific Islands. And uh, as I studied baths, I saw more and more how important they were and how quickly I could change attitudes uh, by simply sharing knowledge. And I tried to get the big traditional organizations to do something for bats. And they didn't want to touch bats with a 10 foot pole. Bats were at that time, they ranked in public in a public opinion poll right between rattlesnakes and cockroaches. And uh, so no conservation entity wanted anything to do with bats. They're way too unpopular to be helped. And even federal and state agencies looked the same. You know, if the public wasn't interested, they weren't interested in the only interest in the public in those days was by the late 70s and early 80s, health departments were warning people that most if not all bats were rabid, that they would attack people. There were all kinds of planted stories in the news media from yeah. pest control companies, from uh, health departments. Health departments greatly increased budgets uh, over what they could normally have for rabies because all these bats were such a big threat. And uh, the pest control industry was getting wealthy, spent charging thousands of dollars to get rid of bats in somebody's attic that they could have done in a short time on their own. And uh, so the climate was such that everybody perceived bats as totally hopelessly impossible to conserve because everybody hated them and feared them. But uh, simple introductions to real bats uh, made a huge difference. And I finally got the idea that I could found an organization for them through my photography, which I had never done serious photography until National Geographic asked me to write a chapter on bats in their Wild Animals of America book. And uh, when I finished writing my chapter, defending bats as valuable and harmless, uh, I went to Washington DC to meet with the editors and they showed me the pictures they were gonna put with my chapter. And they were all pictures of provoked snarling bats blown up where, you know, if, if you take a picture of a, a little bat's head that may be no bigger than my thumb and uh, then you blow it up to page size with him snarling, he looks like a saber tooth tiger on the attack. And yeah. so this is what they were gonna put with my article. And I said, you know, you can't, do that. You, if you did that to any other animal in this book, you, the public would have a fit. Uh, that's totally unnatural and inappropriate. Well, the editor sympathized with me. And so he sent one of their staff photographers based little Hales to the field with me for six weeks to, uh, photograph bats for the book. Well, photographing bats is extremely difficult. Uh, especially if you don't know anything about bats. And so he only got three usable pictures in that time with me, but he encouraged me that I was very curious and asked him about everything he did. 
And so he left me his extra film when he finished and suggested I try to photograph them. <laughs> and I ended up being the second most used photographer in the book. Uh, and so that was a huge beginning because when I started showing pictures that I took for that book, I could see the huge impact they, they had on people when they saw what bats really looked like and what they really did. And uh, that encouraged me. So that one day after a talk, a little old lady came up and said, you know, Dr. Tuttle, uh, there are people like me who would help if you just had a nonprofit organization. And uh, so that was how B Bat Conservation International got born. And my first employee was simply a half-time secretary. And my ambition was to have help handling all, because as I, promoted bats, people started asking questions of the major organizations and they didn't want to deal with bats. So they just referred these people to me and it was becoming a big nuisance. So I hired a secretary thinking this person would help me solve my nuisance. And my nuisance grew to become a major opportunity. And the first thing I knew I was so busy doing conservation and enjoying seeing the progress so much that I actually voluntarily decided to resign my full-time bat research position, which was a choice position. Not many people get to do full-time bat research. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so... That was at the Milwaukee Museum, right, Merlin? Right. So when I did that, even my closest colleagues thought I was going absolutely stark raving mad, giving up a position <laughs> like that to go out and found an organization for the world's least popular animals. So that's how that's how the first organization got born. While we're on the timeline stuff, I just want to bring up that um, we have some really amazing videos and stories from Merlin's first Smithsonian expeditions, which were in the mid 60s. So before okay. all this stuff that we're talking about, but um, that's some really exciting. Where do we find that? Is that one the is that on the MTBC website or? Yeah, we link it on there. Um, I will add a link for you. Uh, the videos aren't up right now, so you better get them back up if you're going to tell people about they it. They are. I fixed them. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> did, you, did you ever doubt Marilyn back then? In what, that would have been for early 80s, 1982. So everybody's telling you that you're crazy doing what you're doing, but did you ever have any doubts yourself that you'd made the wrong decision? No, I didn't. Uh, it took off and grew so fast and we made so much to be accomplishment to be proud of it. I couldn't have been more lucky. Uh, one of the first interviews I did, I'd just done some exciting research on frog eating bats and the Wall Street Journal called me and wanted to interview me about my uh, froggy and bat research. And I said, you know, National Geographic and everybody else has already talked about that. Why don't you do a story on why any seemingly sane scientist would resign his job to found a bat conservation organization? So they did a story about why I founded Bat Conservation International. And as a result, the chairman of the board of the biggest, oldest PR firm in America called me up and offered to help said he he had always been intrigued by extreme challenges and I seemed to have the biggest challenge he'd yet seen 
so he then attracted the the president and chairman of the board the president and executive director of bacardi rum and three of my first four trustees were people that you would normally not even dream of getting on a board and uh then things just started snowballing. And uh, within a matter of just a few years, we were a multi-million dollar organization with 15 staff at that point. Wow, wow. And there's a picture there of, I think it's called Congress Bridge. You moved, you moved BCI on the back of the perceived issues that bats were causing in that area relative to the free-tailed bats roosting in Congress Bridge. Do you want to talk, talk very briefly about, about that? Because that, that seems to me like there's this massive negative problem about bats. Let's just move the whole organisation down there and tell these people how wonderful bats are. Is that kind of what happened? Well, what happened was right after I founded Bat Conservation International, the uh, bats began moving, free tail bats began moving into crevices newly created beneath the Congress Avenue Bridge in downtown Austin, Texas. Health officials warned that they were mostly rabid and would attack people. The people of Austin panicked, were signing petitions to have them eradicated. They were making national news from coast to coast. That wasn't exactly the climate I intended to face when I founded a conservation organization for them. So I headed to Austin to try to calm the fears and ended up moving there. And everybody thinks it must have been a Herculean task to change attitudes, but it really wasn't. I just had to show people a few real bats and show them a few pictures and tell them the truth about bats. And uh, Today, those bats are worth more than 10 million tourist dollars a summer. In a, they attract tourism from all over the world. And the colony eats about 10 tons of uh, insects a night. And of course, they're extremely popular now. Yeah, yeah. Teresa, did I say Boston earlier? But an error. I couldn't tell if it was just the accent, but it's Austin, Texas. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I know it's Austin, but I've just got this horrible feeling that when I, <laughs> when I was talking about the photograph. It's yeah. fair. We know those how much of, Those of in Europe, Boston is a totally different place to Austin, all right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, this I have, I've never been, I've never been uh, to Austin to see this, but it is one of my, it's definitely one of my, uh, Tick lists is one of my hit lists. Um, right, something else I wanted to talk about, because in today's bat world, uh, a lot of people like me use this, uh, this piece of equipment called the harp trap for catching bats. Now, uh, you were telling me earlier, Marilyn, that you didn't officially invent the harp trap in its original form, but you took someone else's idea and you adapted it to make it pretty much the piece of equipment that we're using today. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the first harp trap as we've gone to love it today in the bat world? Yeah. Denny Constantine invented the first actual harp. Uh, I guess you'd call it a harp trap. He didn't, it wasn't called that in those days. Uh, but it was a big frame with piano wires strung 
in a bag underneath with a funnel that bats when they got caught went down into a holding bag below. But uh, that was only good for where there are millions of bats coming into Carlsbad Caverns, free tail bats that weren't very maneuverable. And you could miss 99% of them and still have a big catch. So uh, I tried to use that trap for other broader purposes and it didn't work. But uh, I noticed that the bats were either bouncing off or going through and uh, decide that if I put two traps, two frames, one in front of the other and got them spaced just right, that I might fix that. And uh, of course his trap hung from the ceiling too. I had to develop legs, extendable legs and everything. But uh, uh, I did invent the trap that actually ended up being widely useful. Yeah, yeah. And do you get any royalties on that, Marilyn? Or <laughs> did I what? Do you get any royalties on that for other organizations that have built them ever since? Or did you miss a trick there? No, no. Uh, I do what I do to promote bats and their conservation. Now, unfortunately, I see my traps too often being used by virologists doing things I don't approve of. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. Right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on. I want to talk very briefly. Uh, you, you did your PhD, I think, in the 1970s on grey myotis. So that's the species uh, you mentioned earlier. But in your, in your bat-related uh, professional life, so to speak, you've had 57 research publications, maybe more than that now, numerous high-profile articles and especially uh, some amazing stuff in National Geographic over a period of many years. And you've also got uh, these two books here that a lot of bat workers, especially in Europe, I assume in the Americas as well, will be familiar with. And I've got both of these here and they're both very, very different. Uh, the first one, uh, Bats, an illustrated guide to all species. This was actually given to me as a present from a bat friend a few years ago. And, um, and I opened it up and I was just absolutely amazed by, by the photography in here, as well as the fact that it walks you through all the different bat families and where you might potentially find them worldwide. And we'll talk more about your photography in a minute. But then we've also got this book that we talked about earlier, The Secret Lives of Bats, which I've got to say, there are not many books on bats that would come across like this from the point of view that this is pretty much, Marilyn, telling your story in your lifetime as a bat person. And I've got to say, it is a complete page turner from the point of view that I read this book start to finish in less than three days. And some of the things that you talk about in here regarding some of the stuff that you did and the hard work and the places you went to and the situations you put yourself into, either knowingly or unknowingly, it's 
pretty amazing stuff, yeah. And and one of the very first stories in that book is how you went onwards within a cave system, leaving your mum and dad behind, searching for colonies of bats in a cave system, and you ended up running out of light and being lost and potentially getting yourself in a very dangerous situation. And that's one of loads of times that that has happened, according to that book. Are you totally fearless or do you just get your eye on the ball and you just think, I'm doing this and I'll worry about what happens afterwards? I mean, what's the mentality of someone in the late teens doing this kind of work? I'm not fearless. I, I, I have a lot of fears of walking downtown at night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not, I'm more acquainted with things that, you know, people fear most what they know least and crawling around in caves isn't exactly new to me. Uh, one of my primary study caves, I had to rope down a vertical free fall 105 feet just to get in. But I was quite safe on that rope. I mean, you know, as long as I rigged myself correctly, I was perfectly safe. I'm not near that safe when I'm walking downtown and there's some drunk on the road that might run over me or do something otherwise. Uh, I mean, I, I remember, I think I told about in the book, an experience in Thailand where I was crawling on my belly into a cave and noticed a cobra coming the opposite direction. And I had to lie real still while he crawled by so I didn't disturb him. And uh, then I was very careful how I went the rest of the way in and came back out. But I was in no more danger than we often are from fellow humans. Uh, I knew to be quiet and not scare the snake and he wouldn't bother me. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm all that brave. I just have different things I'm afraid of. <laughs> I was yeah, I was screaming at the book at one point, okay, and it's the bit when you're in the hot air balloon, yeah, and it's totally dark, and you're thousands of feet, many thousands of feet up in the air, and then you decide to go outside of the balloon basket in order to take pictures of people in the balloon basket, and you seem to be slightly... You seem to be slightly surprised that the balloon operator uh, wasn't comfortable with you actually getting outside <laughs> the balloon. <laughs> well, he was, again, he was afraid of the unknown. He'd never had anybody in his balloon before that hooked a carabiner to the rigging of the balloon and had a caver type apparatus built uh, seat sling and uh, wanted to go over the side of his gondola. Uh, I was perfectly safe doing that, but uh, he had never seen it done before. So he was terrified that I was going to get killed and get blamed on him. Yeah, yeah. Teresa, Teresa, yeah. Right, right. Tell me honestly, right? If you'd been in that uh, balloon basket with Merlin that night, would have you let him go for the side of the? Would have you let him do that? <laughs> How would have you been feeling about that? Um, I would have, yeah. He, know, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, he was hooked in. You know, people do people do scary people do freebasing. That's way yeah. that's way scarier. But yeah, Merlin knows what he's doing. But I do have this question for you, Merlin. Have you ever been scared? Like, I don't know if you told this part of the story in the book, but um, 
when have you ever gotten stuck or was there anything that ever happened in a cave that was that you did feel scared of that was unknown to you well one one thing that really scared me uh i'm not sure if i told it in the in that book or not but fairly early on i had my father had taken me to a new cave to look for bats and people had dug pits in the floor looking for Indian artifacts. And uh, the day before we'd been in a cave and I'd been shuffling my feet along the floor, kind of feeling where I was going while I looked up for bats. And I'd almost walked into a 70 foot deep pit. And I mean, I'd literally stopped with one foot hanging over the pit when I couldn't feel the floor anymore. And uh, so the second day we're in a different cave and I'm going along doing something similar, looking at the ceiling, thinking that everything's fine. And all of a sudden I stepped off into what appeared to be a bottomless hole. And I barely caught myself with my hands up at the top. And I was hanging just precariously by my fingertips and my feet were just kicking in space. And I could envision having the experience the day before that I was hanging over maybe a 70 foot pit and I was screaming for my father to come help. And when he got there, he looked down and found that my feet were only five inches off the floor. <laughs> oh, goodness, that was, goodness. Yeah. That was I'll scary. You, I'll tell you, I, last, last night I was in somebody's back garden, okay, somewhere in North Lancashire in England. And I was, uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning and a domestic cat passed by me and scared the socks off me. That, that's about <laughs> as scary as my life gets when it comes to bat work. <laughs> domestic cat, you know, or uh, unlike elephants and tigers and stuff. Look, anybody watching this, um, you've got to read this book, The Secret Lives of Bats. It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. And, yeah, I was uh, going to say, yeah. oh, Merlin has a good elephant story, but I think that's what you're referring to in the book. So read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. Right, I want to touch very briefly on photography. And when I was doing the research for this interview, I saw this picture and I've read about and I've seen pictures of your photography setups for the kind of pictures that you take uh, for articles and the like. And this picture here seems to me to be as far away as you can get from the amount of time and effort and organization that's involved in a professional photo shoot for you, uh, which includes things like hiring hotel rooms and getting hoteliers to clear all the furniture out because you then turn their hotel room into a bat cave or whatever. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the efforts and the kind of stuff you've done in order to get some of these amazing photographs that many people around the world are well accustomed to seeing today with bats? Yeah. There's no one way of doing it. I'm just very persistent and creative and it takes learning a lot about the bats. And uh, I don't hesitate to go where, where I need to go to get the picture. Uh, you see this picture here where I'm crawling out of a hole under a giant 
silk cotton Korean Panama. Uh, <clears throat> I chased a wild peccary out of the hole before I climbed in. <laughs> uh, and you have to be real careful going into places like that. Uh, the first time I took Teresa into a hole like that in a tree, uh, I thought I'd checked it out carefully for poisonous snakes. And uh, apparently I missed one because in the video she took in the, in the tree with me, somebody pointed out that there was a snake pointing his head out of a hole in the side of the tree. <laughs> but uh, I sometimes spend literally hours acclimating wild bats so that they're not afraid of me. So I'll, I'll just move a few feet closer snap a couple pictures, let them get used to the sound of the camera and the flash going off. Then every time they look like they're getting nervous and gonna fly, I stop maybe even back up a foot. And I've had bats like that that would have flown immediately if I'd encroached even within 30 feet of it originally, but eventually I'd be taking pictures so close that I almost needed a macro lens and they would learn that I wasn't a threat. Other bats, I take them into a collapsible studio that I carry with me and literally train them to come and uh, capture prey at a given location on call. Uh, I trained uh, frogging bats for the BBC once so that uh, I could tell the cameraman that the bat was going to come straight in to catch the frog or it was gonna come in do a right turn or a left turn. And uh, I'd trained the bats so that I would point in, get me, let me make this clear. All of my pictures done in sets in my studio are done in sets created from local vegetation and material so that even I couldn't tell looking at the picture that it wasn't done in the wild. They're all absolutely authentic to real behavior and settings. Yeah. But I could point to a frog and then take the bats were trained so that they wouldn't come when I pointed to the frog I want them to catch. Then I'd take my hand back and like that, make a sound. And that would be the bat's cue to come catch the frog and the camera could get the picture. But when the crew got there, I didn't understand that their high speed camera was going to make a hell of a lot of noise. Okay. And so the frogs couldn't hear, the bats couldn't hear my signals anymore. So I thought, oh my God, we're, we're shot now. We'll never be able to get these pictures. But it only took 15 minutes to train the bats that I could point to a frog. They'd remember which frog they were supposed to go to and then not go until they heard the high-speed camera start. Wow, wow, yeah, just amazing and stuff. Amazing I've, stuff. I've had bats, little uh, woolly bats, caravula, uh, that uh, would actually try to train me. <laughs> In fact, uh, we've got a video, a YouTube video on our website <clears throat> that my wife shot, of the, my first experience that way. Uh, we. I caught one the night before. They only weigh four grams and uh, brought it into my studio and fed it mealworms out of my hand. And then the next morning we came back to work. And the moment I came into my walk-in studio, the uh, 
little bat came down and started bumping me in the nose, flying up and bumping me in the, <laughs> in the nose. And it was clear to me that he wanted me to feed him. I don't know how I figured that out, but uh, uh, at first I was without a shirt because it was very hot in Barneo where we were working. My wife said, get a shirt on quick so I can film this. And I grabbed a shirt and the bat kept pestering me, bumping me in the nose. So she got that on film and I wouldn't tell this story. I wouldn't dare tell the story except that it's on film, how the bat kept trying to train me, bumping me in the nose. And then when I finally held up a mealworm in my hand, he went and got the mealworm out of my hand. Amazing. Absolutely. I mean, how Amazing. that little bat that had never eaten a mealworm before, never probably caught a non-flying insect before, never seen a human before, knew to bump me in the nose to get my attention to feed him is just amazing that, that is just astonishing isn't it right so let's talk a little bit about Merlin turtles at conservation so in 2009 you retired from bat conservation international and um is it fair to say that you struggled with retirement Merlin is that is that kind of what <laughs> happened it, because uh, Five, six years later, you go away and you set up this organization. Tell us a little bit about MTBC. I, I've given up the idea of retirement. It's just not suitable for me. Merlin uh, even I, needs to retire at the end of the day. He'll send emails at 8.30 p.m. And I'll be like, Merlin, go <laughs> get off your computer. <laughs> He's doing it all the time. Well, the thing is, I really enjoy what I do conserving bats and and I feel so good I mean imagine how I felt when a couple of years ago someone showed me a picture a, a video of large numbers of bats pouring in and out of a cave gate and uh, I recognized that it was a cave that I had gotten protected 20 years ago and there had been no bats there when I got it protected but based on stains of the limestone I knew that there had been millions there and now there are 300,000 bats there wow. just wow. because I recognized the evidence and convinced uh, the National Park Service to allow us to take out concrete in a bad gate and put in a bat friendly gate you know wow. I take great pride in looking back and seeing these things and I truly enjoy educating people about bats and I, I'd rather photograph bats than go fly fishing. That's, fly fishing is a wonderful hobby, but it doesn't compare to photographing bats. It's something I do when I can't photograph bats. So, okay. you know, I, I really enjoy every aspect of what I'm doing to conserve bats and the work when I retired from Bat Conservation International, the work followed me and uh, I couldn't resist temptation to get to going ahead and doing the things I'd always done that were so rewarding. Yeah. So now I'm working harder than ever before, uh, running and building a whole new organization for bats. We, we aren't trying to compete with anybody. We're basically providing photographs and, re, and informational resources that no one else has available. Uh, there are not a whole lot of people that have 60 years of experience working worldwide on bat conservation. So I have a lot of unique insights to share. And of course, then I have over 100,000 
uh, photos that are in huge use worldwide to promote conservation. Yeah, yeah. And Teresa, you are a co-founder of this, of this with Merlin, is, is that correct? How, how did you get involved? How, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah. I got involved much like you did, Neil, by accident. Right. I uh, got, so Merlin's talking about all this photo collection, these are largely film slides you know, up until what, I guess, like the late nineties when you switched over the digital Merlin. So I got hired to um, assist Merlin with organizing all of those slides, with scanning them, with figuring out the data, organizing the data, updating taxonomy, et cetera, everything. There's a lot that goes into it to keep them organized and up to date. Um, yeah. But that was just a project and uh, and then I just started gradually doing more. Merle and I just enjoyed working together and we started doing more and more together. And that then just really took off from there. And I remember I was sitting there um, doing these slides and it takes like one minute per tray. So I would stick the tray in and then just be waiting for one minute while it's scanned. And during that time, I mean, I'm looking at all these amazing photos. I'm like, this is insane. This body of work and like what have you done and like these pictures are so beautiful and so I was like I'm gonna start you an Instagram page this is people need to see this like on Instagram and so that became a huge hit and that's really fun to share it in that way but that was that was the origin and now you're a totally converted bat fan yeah Yeah. now now I can say I'm a bat person bat person Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. And as you're, as you're alluding to there, uh, Merlin, earlier, there's a lot of resources on this website uh, and to do with, with your, uh, with your uh, foundation, I suppose, your conservation organisation. And there's also lots of, uh, as well as the resources, there's lots of articles about things to do with um, and I see articles, there's articles, there's links, there's video footage, and a lot of what you've done uh, from a conservation perspective, um, Merlin, has been about putting things into perspective for people and for organisations around the world. And you've touched upon this already during the interview when you were talking about the, the cavers and stuff. I've got a few things that I've just put up there just as a backdrop do you want to talk a little bit about putting fears into perspective and winning friends, not battles, which was an expression that you use a lot in MTBC? Well, I should perhaps admit that before I ever got involved in conservation, I probably killed more bats than any other scientist I know. Uh, I was collecting specimens for two years full time in the jungle of South America for the Smithsonian, and we put up thousands of specimens. Uh, I understand the needs of science. I understand the fact that people have in their mind legitimate reasons for fearing and hating bats. And I don't hold prejudice against people for what they've done in the past. It's what they're doing in the future that counts. So when somebody tells me, you know, how many bats they've killed or something like that, I don't immediately dislike them. Uh, 
the poachers there you've got a picture up of the bats at Kauchong Prawn and the people watching them when I first went to that cave in Thailand the bats were nearly extirpated because poachers were coming in and catching many thousands of them and selling them to restaurants for people to eat and uh, I was contacted by the monks who owned the cave because they depended on income from guano sales for fertilizer and the sales were plummeting and they wanted my advice on how to stop that problem. So I found the poachers and uh, advised the monks to hire a game warden to protect the bats. They did and almost to my own amazement, I ended up being very good friends with the poachers and the monks and even the guys who were selling them in their restaurants. Uh, the guy who was selling their restaurants, when I went back nearly 40 years later and found him, <clears throat> I guess it was about 35 years later, <clears throat> looked him up. He remembered me and he was actually aware that I was the one that was behind the monks getting a law passed locally to prohibit all commercial use of bats and that actually put him out of business <clears throat> but he welcomed me like a long lost friend and said it was really great that he got put out of business because it, he wasn't making that much money anyway and and he turned his restaurant into a convenience store where he's making a much better living I, <clears throat> but uh i i enjoy investigating why people feel the way they feel. And if you're going to educate people about bats, you have to know what's causing them to fear bats. And uh, I simply, you know, I might say, well, you know, to feel that way, some, you know, how do you come to feel that way? Uh, and they'll tell me they read some terrible article in a magazine or they a friend told them and i said well you know does everything this person tells you is it always correct well no uh well you know i've had x number of years experience working with bats all over the world often surrounded by millions in caves and i've still never been attacked or harmed by a bat mm -hmm. and did you know that they do these kind of things and uh it's just amazing how quickly you can turn people's attitudes around and it's become something like the old gun slinger used to put notches on his gun for many he'd killed well each convert is a notch in my gun for conservation and uh, i take a lot of pride in that and it's fun for me i don't become offended because somebody's doing something i don't approve of in samoa when I convinced the uh, commercial hunters that were devastating flying foxes to uh, help create a national park, uh, it was done gradually. I didn't just go in and condemn hunting bats. I first talked to them about, you know, the bats were totally disappearing and uh, by their own admission. And I said, you know, what's gonna be left for your children to hunt in the future. Well, it's too bad, but we're, you know, they're probably going to be gone. Well, have you ever thought about having bag limits and hunting laws? 
that might ensure that there was a future. Well, the first thing I did was got them to actually ask me to represent them to the governor Lutali of Samoa to get hunting laws. And I did that and they passed within six months and the hunters abided by them uh, because it was viewed as their idea. And I took a lot of flack from colleagues who were really upset that I would condone hunting. But what happened was the hunters then voluntarily, they liked the bats and what I taught them about them. And they decided to declare a five-year moratorium on hunting. Wow. That moratorium, last I heard, was still in place 25 years later. <clears throat> so by not going in and declaring war on somebody doing something I didn't approve of, just trying to help them, I achieved something that couldn't have been achieved if I'd gone in and viewed them as enemies. Yeah, and it's like social life. If, if you tell someone to do something, they may or they may not do it, but the key to it is they've got to want to change whatever it is. They've got to, they've got to want to do it. And, right. and this, is, this seems to be what your approach has been with so many things. It's not been about going in and telling people they're wrong. As you say, it's been about slowly just making them aware of the facts and at the end of the day, they actually want to do it as opposed to being told to do it. Is that, is that a fair summary of what you were saying? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that story. I've been very lucky. I've actually visited this site in, in Thailand. Uh, absolutely amazing. It wasn't that busy when I was there. There was maybe only about 20, 30 people there the night that I was there, but it was an amazing place. And uh, if anybody ever goes to Thailand, it's a very easy place to get to. And it's, uh, it's a total, this picture, no picture can do this justice because mm -hmm. this goes on for, I think the night I was there, this went on for more than an hour from memory easily. Um, oh yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can see the bats coming out from probably a mile or two miles away. Yeah, yeah. And you get the hawks coming in trying to take them out of the air as well now and right. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about COVID because, well, uh, bats seem to have, at least initially, taken quite a lot of the blame behind the, the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Um, do you want to... Do you want to talk about this, Merlin? Because obviously, again, this is about perspectives and it's about what's accurate and what we know and what we don't know. What's your thoughts on the whole COVID-19 impact as it relates to bat conservation? By way of background, let me point out that if you go to my re website resource titled Fear, Fear of Bats and Its Consequences, I trace back how... Uh, public health exaggerations have dramatically impacted, negatively impacted bat conservation way back from the 1970s uh, through today. And uh, in fact, what may amaze 
even a lot of bat workers is to hear that despite all the recent claims, there has never been a single instance when the when SARS, MERS, Ebola, or now COVID virus has been isolated from a bat. All this attributing blame bats is speculation and there's no lack for bias in that speculation. Uh, speculation is very, very profitable for public health budgets. And uh, if you wanna know a lot more about the fact that there are two viable hypotheses, one lab origin that has gotten very little attention, I'd suggest you read Nicholas Wade's article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. It's a very reputable journal, a reputable writer, and he points out that the case is far from closed that COVID came from bats. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm aware uh, because I was listening to something on the internet, totally unrelated to bats, and had, and there seems to be a little bit more steam now at, on your side of the Atlantic about the, it came from a lab theory. Uh, is that a misconception from me over here in the UK? Or is this getting talked about a little bit more now than what it maybe was a year ago? Um, well, the, uh, the lab hypothesis is suddenly getting a lot of attention based on uh, Nicholas Wade's uh, recent extensive uh, coverage in which he covered both the uh, natural and lab origin hypotheses uh, quite fairly, but insisted on covering both, whereas in the World Health Organization investigation, they devoted maybe three or four pages to lab hypothesis origin and 300 and some to coming from natural bat origin. Uh, it's been pointed out that there's been a lot of bias, that there's really two very viable uh, hypotheses. And in fact, a lot of evidence uh, has, has just not been adequately investigated and uh, hopefully that will now happen. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, okay. Uh, on, a, on more of a personal front, uh, uh, Merlin, have you had your vaccinations for COVID? Yeah, have you? Uh... <laughs> yes, I have, and I didn't have any negative reaction. Okay, no more okay. than a mildly sore arm. Yeah, yeah, I got that as well, uh, so yeah. Okay, well, look, uh, within the website, uh, there is obviously lots of information there that you can look at regarding the COVID-19 impact with some uh, links there to articles, as well as articles and links about other associated uh, material where bats have been, you know, rightly or wrongly associated, usually wrongly, I would suspect, uh, associate with, associated with other things. So definitely well worth going there for a look to get, uh, to get some more information about uh, the kind of stuff that we've just touched upon briefly here. Um, Marlon, did you want to touch on I'll go for it, about, I'll go back um... a page. I'll just, just 
back. Yeah, go for it, Teresa. Yeah. Did yeah. you want to touch on anything about the restrictions? Because I know that your group, your you guys are bat workers, so I don't know if you had restrictions. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's been what I perceive to be an understandable but overreaction to uh, protecting bats from getting COVID from people. Uh, the only bat tested so far in the US was the big brown bat and it was found to be very unlikely to get it from people. But uh, there are now many government enforced regulations interfering with the handling and research of bats without all kinds of decontamination and wearing masks and all sorts of things. In fact, uh, in the United States, it's still difficult to get to handle bats at all. And no, that's, that's exactly the same as the situation here in the United Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. I, view, I view those restrictions as doing far more harm than, than good. They're maybe well intended, but uh, <clears throat> in the United States, those restrictions have put an end for two years now to work training workshops that were hugely instrumental in promoting bat conservation. They can't have training workshops, animal rehabbers. We, we have a case where a, a guy called and wanted help with a bat they found down in his yard and the rehabber said she couldn't come anymore because of restrictions against handling bats. And uh, so the guy was home because he was suspected of having COVID and he went out and picked up the bat and tried to help it himself. Uh, one thing we're seemingly ignoring when we Im invoke these restrictions on researchers and bat workers is that the public, we're, we're only a small fraction of the people that come in contact with bats or handle bats. Millions of people eat bats, millions of people handle bats that we're not even aware of. And by putting all these restrictions on researchers and, and, and rehabbers, uh, we're actually, what we're doing is sending a message to the public, maybe inadvertently, that we ourselves fear bats as dangerous. I mean, yeah. I understand that some places, now people are being allowed to handle bats with gloves and masks but just wearing masks always when you handle bats sends a complete opposite message to the public. We've been for years trying to educate them that bats aren't dangerous and that if you just, you know, anybody that doesn't pick up and handle a bat has nothing to worry about. And yet they now see bat workers having to dress up in all kinds of gear and wear masks and do things uh, it just sends a completely counterproductive message that it has potential for undoing years of conservation progress. And it's certainly interfering with research and uh, uh, other work with bats. Yeah, and this is something certainly uh, in the United Kingdom that it's having an impact here as well. Uh, I mean, I myself am one of these people that would be involved in research and people development. And as you say, the people such as myself over, uh, over in this part of the world, uh, pretty much all of our work 
in these respects have now pretty much ceased uh, now well into the second year uh, where things have not been happening. And that's just been really interesting to get your perspective on that. That's just been, well, it's been fascinating to hear that. Yeah. yeah. It's my view that if indeed COVID can be transmitted from a bat, from a human to a bat, that it will be. I mean, we can't stop that from happening if it's possible. Uh, it, we don't even know that it is possible. It may be incredibly unlikely. It may never happen. But uh, assuming that, that it would happen is causing a lot more problem than good for bats. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay, Teresa, thank you, because that's not something I would have thought about talking about there. So that's that has been really valuable to to get that to get that perspective. Okay, there's so a resource just, that that review of the impact details all that that Merlin was talking about, and there's citations on there too to support. So, okay, so you might be interested if you're watching this interview as to how do you go about joining uh, Merlin Tuttle's bat conservation. Well, at the end of the interview, we'll put up the web link and it's very easy, okay? Uh, you just go to the web page, an amazing website, lots of resources, lots of information, touching upon so much more than we've had time to cover today. And it's really, it really is worth, it really is worth investigating. Uh, Batability, we've become a follower in recent weeks. And we've also, just to, to put out there, we've made a small donation to MTBC this week as a thank you to Marilyn and Teresa for uh, their, their time today, because I think they're doing extremely valuable work. That's an understatement. You know, they're doing extremely, extremely valuable work. So and the least so, and so are you doing very valuable work, Neil, and we really oh. appreciate what you're doing. Well, well, thank you, but you know, I'll, I'll see where I'm at after uh, another 30 years, but I don't think I've got to come. <laughs> but, well, you're uh, doing yeah. education, and that's one of the most important things for helping bats is educating humans, and what you've put together today, you're using photos from our website, which anyone can do. We invite anyone and everyone to use photos from our website to create a presentation like this or to even just show people on your phone um that's what they're there for and anyone can do it and you don't have to do anything massive it can just be you know share with your neighbors and yeah yeah and it's, it's interesting so like, impactful. yeah i mean almost 30 years ago when i first got involved with bats um i was from the the, the birding community the ornithological community and all of my ornitholo ornithological friends okay all of my bird of friends just looked at me as if to say, why are you getting involved with bats? And people that I worked with, I used to be afraid to tell, I used to work in an insurance company, I used to be afraid to tell people in the insurance company that I was interested in bats because I would always get a negative reaction. Now, this was almost 30 years ago. And what I've noticed today, and it's maybe a British Isles perspective, but it is very unusual today for me to get a negative reaction from anybody that doesn't know me when I say what I do 
it's always some sort of positive thing is the first thing that comes out of their mouth. And it's things like, you know that they're protected or I saw something on television, they're amazing. Whereas 30 years ago, it was, you're a crazy person, why are you into that? You know, so certainly from a British Isles perspective, things seem to have moved on hugely. And of course, our own uh, Bat Conservation Trust, uh, which has done amazing work in uh, Britain and further afield, that's helped hugely towards that. Sorry, I've started talking about myself, which is the last thing I should do because I'm supposed to be interviewing <laughs> you guys. <laughs> um, Teresa, it's pretty easy to become a member or follow MTBC, is that correct? <laughs> really easy if you can use the internet you can do it <laughs> yeah you can use the internet and a credit card and uh, and all the rest of it yeah um, we're on instagram facebook and twitter as well and we're we share different things on all those platforms so join us everywhere yeah no and it's an amazing website it's a very refreshing website i only looked at it for the first time a number of weeks ago and i immediately thought wow what an amazing website beautifully put together um, yeah, yeah. So, Ellen, a couple of questions for you uh, because we're, we're coming to, we're coming towards the end now. But there's just a few things that I've been wanting to ask you, which uh, I think would be um, quite interesting. Um, you have done so many amazing, interesting, uh, fabulous things, which. Even one of those things for anybody would be a lifetime experience, but you've had a conveyor belt of these things. Is there anything that you haven't done that you would still want to do? So I'm saying want to do, not need to do, but is there anything out there from a bat perspective? It might be a species that you haven't seen or photographed or a place that you haven't been. Is there anything out there still to do from that perspective for you? I'm always waiting for the next new discovery. Uh, I, my last big goal was uh, photographing woolly bats going in and using pitcher plants for roost. Uh, it was an incredible story, not particularly you know, you, you do, everything I do doesn't have to be directly about conservation. Just showing people the incredible diversity of bats and showing them the incredible range of behavior and relevance to the world around them uh, is in itself. You know, if you come up to a person who thinks they hate bats, one of the best ways to change their mind is to show them or especially pictures of things that bats are doing that they never dreamed possible. Bats that, you know, have nearly six foot wingspans or, or that weigh less than a U.S. penny. Uh, that once you show them how little they know and how wrong they've been in their perspective, then that opens their mind to accepting reality. Yeah. So I, I love action stuff. I had, you know, it was very difficult getting the pictures of bats going in and out of pitcher plants, as you can imagine. Yeah. But uh, even those, even that kind of photography is very useful. 
those pictures got me into publications that would never have talked about bats had they not wanted to use those spectacular pictures. And so I was, it gave me a chance to talk about how intelligent those little bats were. And uh, so I don't know, my next interest is undoubtedly something that I don't even know about yet. <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. But I just try to keep up with what's going on in the world of bats. And when something new is discovered that's really especially amazing or valuable, I uh, like to be Johnny on the spot to photograph it. Wow, wow. yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure there's gonna be many more uh, stories to tell in the years to come. If you had a million dollars, Marilyn, yeah? If someone dropped a million dollars this afternoon into MTBC's bank account, uh, what would you do with it? Well, I probably need a bit more than that, but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> that, would be a, that, would, that would be a good start. What I'd love to do, what I dream about doing, and it's still a possibility out there, I would like to somehow raise sufficient funds in my lifetime to leave an endowed entity that could stand up with integrity to whatever needed to be said about bats without worrying about what funding they're going to lose or make and that that money could be used then as an endowment to cover costs of funding student scholarships. Uh, I started a program at BCI years ago that has funded over 300 students. Those kinds of programs make a huge difference. Much of what we know good about bats these days came from scholarships that I early uh, funded. And uh, today, most of the money is in finding reasons why you might ought to fear bats, scaring people about bats and how we need to study them more to save us from terrible pandemics. Uh, we really need more research funding directed toward understanding the values of bats and putting fear in perspective. And that's not going to happen until somebody has the money to fund that kind of research. So I would love to leave behind an entity that could uh, help students in the future to engage in research that would really be bottom line helpful to understanding the things of greatest importance to conserving bats and preserving our healthy environment. Uh, yeah. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would just be absolutely amazing. Um, and I take you back to the very beginning of your uh, bat-related work as a teenager in the, these caves. You know, this this has been and still is uh, one amazing journey <laughs> that you've been on this last 60 years. Do you think back then, if uh, if you'd seen where you are now, do you think that would have put you off or scared you? Would you have a bit of you thought as an 18, 19 year old, oh my goodness, no, I would never be able to do all of that. Or uh, how, do you, how do you think an 18 year old Merlin would view 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say your age now, okay, but would view you today. Um, People often uh, mention that they think I, you know, I must have had some incredible uh, strategic plan or something. I didn't have a strategic plan. I just did what came to my, you know, took advantage of opportunities to do things that excited me and that I believed in. And uh, it's amazing where uh, one's passion can lead to. Uh, I was passionate about what I did that infected other people and everything snowballed. And we have vastly exceeded any, I mean, I couldn't have even dreamed when I founded my first organization that it would ever become a worldwide major influence in conservation. Yeah, yeah. an amazing, amazing, uh, amazing, amazing story. And I'm still, and I'm yeah. still hoping to be yet further amazed before I, <clears throat> I'll tell my age, I'll be 80 this summer. Wow. wow. Uh, but I'm still hoping that in the next 10 years that I can accomplish things that will uh, far exceed what's happened so far. Yeah. And I've got to say for just coming up to 80, um, you do not come across uh, as as someone typically of that age, and it's obviously all of these uh, things you've been doing over the last sixty years have uh, kept you fit and healthy. Yeah, so. Uh, well, I love what I do, and that's the main ingredient in staying healthy. I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well. Teresa, is there anything else you want to say before we close things off? Because I don't want to close things off without giving you the, an opportunity to say anything at the end. Not really. Just thank you for having us and thank you for sharing, you know, Merlin's story and about MTBC. And I just invite everyone to use our resources. That's why they're there. Yeah, yeah we're, we're happy to help whenever we can. Absolutely. Thank you. And Merlin, is there anything you want to say before we close things off? Well, I just really appreciate, Neil, all the good work you're doing, and I'm sure that many of those listening to us today are also doing good things, and I hope we've encouraged you that uh, nothing is impossible, uh, and with passion and a little bit of preparation, it's just amazing how far we can go. Yeah. There's a lot more we can do for bats, and there's a lot more we need to do for bats. Uh, before ecosystems and economies are secure. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to batability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.